Thanks for joining this expanded content session. What we're going to talk about today is, um, is a lot of the stuff that allows us to take care of patients. We're going to talk about things that will create barriers for us related to contact lens practice, specifically within multifocal contact lens. And um, I want to first, uh, we've got an esteemed panel, but before I get there, we've got our whole team uh, from Exclusive Eye here in Omaha joined us right in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining, guys. We're excited to have you. Uh, for everybody else, we're also uh, recording this for an episode of the iCode Media podcast. And, um, and so what we are doing today is we've had a number of these uh, esteemed guests and my esteemed colleagues on the podcast before. And they each sort of bring a unique perspective. And the, the sort of, I'll give you sort of the global approach to the perspectives that I think are really helpful when I think about our contact lens prescribing habits and how we can gain information from their expertise. Uh, but one, I think it's help, helpful to understand what is going on in the United States related to contact lenses and related to presbyopia and related to multifocal contact lenses. And then we want to think about, like, how do we do this from a vision source standpoint? How do we do this in the practice? What are the pitfalls that occur when we're trying to incorporate something into our practice? And how would we look at this from a doctor's standpoint? And how does that affect the patients that we're seeing? And then the other thing that I think is really interesting is why do we do what we do? And I'm, so I'm sort of fascinated with behavioral economics. And I've, I've made this point before, but... Uh, the, the really the whys behind, I'm not good at it. I don't have any idea what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, but I like to understand why I do the things I do and why other people do the things we do. And so to that end, to kind of build that entire story, uh, we have a couple experts on this panel today to, to discuss those things. So the first one is Dr. Michelle Andrews. Mich Dr. Michelle is, uh, is, well, I'll let you actually, Michelle, so Michelle always can summarize things very well uh, so after we have a conversation, she really encapsulates what we've discussed very uh, expertly. But why I like Michelle is she really breaks down and understands the kind of global aspects of what are going on within eye care, specifically related to contact lenses. So Michelle, give us kind of an overview of, of what you do and, and kind of your, your role within Cooper Vision. Great, thanks. Hi, Chris. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, I've been with Cooper for, it'll be eight years this summer, currently in the role of Vice President of Professional Affairs for the Americas. Uh, the majority of the time that I have a team of 10 people, majority of our time is spent really making sure that all of you have the right materials and assets that you need to educate your patients about our products and to fit our products on your patients. And so that may be things from uh, supporting R&D and marketing and sales, uh, but really um, the majority of our time is making sure that as a practicing eye care professional, that voice of the, of the doctor comes through in, in everything that we do. Thanks for being on, Michelle. Appreciate yep. it. Uh, Dr. Heisman, Dr. Ethan Heisman practices close to Des Moines, Iowa. I gave him a little bit of a hard time on the last episode about that. Um, he is a Hawkeye fan, but yes. he has some Cyclones in his office. Yes. Who won the la this last year, football, between the Iowa Hawkeyes and Cyclones? Do you guys remember? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> the good guys won. Yeah. So, um, Iowa State. Yeah, no. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about your practices, yeah. Ethan, and, and uh, kind of your perspective from Absolutely. a contact standpoint. Yeah, so we're on the right side of the Missouri River, which is where we prefer to be. Um, but we have, we have a few locations around Des Moines, um, uh, eight doctors, and we have a pretty heavy contact lens practice. And um, we've been vision source for, I think, 12 years since, uh, since we opened up. Um, 
but really, you know, CooperVision has been a great partner of ours, and, and we specifically have partnered with CooperVision as our contact lens vendor of choice over the years because, and we'll talk about, you know, all the different reasons why they have been such a great partner for us, um, but just we've had so much success with it that it's really been a great relationship between the two of us. And then Dr. Aldo Zuccario uh, is a PhD in behavioral economics. Tell us a little bit about what behavioral economics is and why it's important from just a, you know, we'll talk about it with contact lenses, but why it's important to understand those things just as a human. Yeah. Uh, behavioral economics is really about how people make decisions. Um, you, you, you know economics, and essentially economics is this very logical um, very straightforward sort of idea, but, but people don't make decisions that way. They make decisions in a variety of different ways, and behavioral economics really gets a little bit deeper and understands, well, why do people do what they do? What are the reasons for that? For CooperVision, I spend a lot of time just thinking about that. Um, how do we help people make decisions when there are so many things that jump in the way? Mainly our brain and emotions, but, but how do we get around those things? I think what's, what I always like to think about related to my conversations I've had over the years with Aldo is I want to give patients the best care that they need. I want to, I want to remove barriers from, from why I would do the best thing for that patient. Because those bar barriers might be perceived financial barriers like, ah, this patient's not going to be able to afford that or they're going to they're gonna reject this because of this. And, and so I, wanna, I know those barriers exist. And so I, the primary reason that it excites me to understand this better is I want to do what's best for the patient. But I want to e eliminate me from my, my mental blocks I have from doing what's best, best for the patient. And I want to remove the patient from their mental blocks from doing what's best for themselves. And so understanding behavioral economics allows, a little bit better allows me to understand, okay, well, how would I present this in a slightly different way that may, uh, how might I look at this in a slightly different way that will remove me as a barrier, and how might I present this in a slightly different way that will remove the patient as their own barrier? So that's why I think it's, it's helpful to have uh, Aldo on this conversation. So to get right into it, um, Dr. Andrews, tell us a little bit about the multifocal marketplace and the presbyopic market marketplace that we're in today. So I'm sure many of you have heard numbers like by 2030, over 2 billion people in the world will have presbyopia. Um, and so we're really aging as a population. And in fact, almost 50% of the US population right now is over the age of 45. And so these patients are, are in our offices and they are looking for the best visual solutions for certainly all of their refractive needs. If we kind of break that down into the contact lens wearing population, about 35% of the contact lens wearing patient, uh, patient population has presbyopia. About 15% of them are wearing soft monofocal or multifocal contact lenses and about 5% are wearing monovision. Now what's interesting is the rate at which things are changing. Monovision is a pretty low number and, and is pretty much stable in, in low numbers. The soft multifocal category is actually growing, but not as fast as the patient population mm -hmm. is aging. So if you were to graph that out, the patient population is increasing at a faster rate than we're prescribing soft multifocals for them. So we're getting better, but we're still not, we're not keeping even. And so then, um, related to dropout, so we're not, so we always think about contact lens dropout within, um, and we talked at the last hour, we talked a little bit about how that impacts 
hyperphoric patients, patients who have astigmatism. Is it the same, like patients get into multifocals and then the dropouts, that's where it really starts to escalate? Is that what we see? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing about dropouts for uh, patients with presbyopian and multifocal lenses, um, you have a higher risk of dropout in your monovision patients, which is over 30%. It decreases a little bit for your Wait, soft Michelle, multi. Michelle, sorry, the, the monovision patient, uh, the 30% monovision, that's of all the patients that are multi or that are presbyopic. 30, if, if, wait, so everybody that wears monovision, 30% of them are going to drop out. Okay. Now it's a little bit lower for your patients in soft multifocals. Probably the bigger dynamic that we look at is the age of when people just give up on contact lenses, and it happens when they reach presbyopia. So you're in the early 40s, and these, bet, these have been patients that are wearing contact lenses for single vision needs, and either they don't try, someone doesn't recommend them. Um, in fact, eye care practitioners don't proactively recommend or even bring up soft multifocals very often, and so they drop out at this point in their early 40s. Had those patients stayed in contact lenses and gone into a soft multifocal lens that met their visual needs, and continued on the trajectory for the rest of their lives, you're looking at, like from a practice management standpoint, you're looking at a profit loss of about $10,000 per patient over the lifetime of their, of their time that they could have been wearing contact lenses. So simple math, right? You can get to a million dollars in lost profit with just 100 patients mm -hmm. that, that drop out. So there really is a significant opportunity to, to understand why we do what we do and how do we, how do we change the curve. On, on, on our own behaviors with, with respect to offering this up to our patients. One of the things that I was thinking about uh, the other day actually was, was this exact same point of if I'm not, if I, so one of the things to remove some of my barriers would be to say, I, if I know these patients are at risk for dropping out, that also means they're probably at risk for not coming back into our practice. And if they don't come back into our practice on a regular basis or if they leave and go someplace else, then you know, are they going to get their macular degeneration detected but instead of 50 years old or 67 years old when they've got category three macular degeneration? You know, could we have intervened at 55 when they had the very first sign of drusen? And we couldn't because we didn't satisfy their contact lens or their visual demand. I've been thinking more and more about this lately of, of what, what am I doing now that's going to prevent me from being able to care for that patient who's 67 down the road? And, and maybe they just don't get to the place they need to get, and, and they miss interventions along the way with glaucoma or macular degeneration or ocular surface disease that makes them a lot worse than they otherwise would have had to be. So that, like I, I, I like the idea of thinking about, about it in terms of from a financial standpoint, but I also like the idea of thinking of like, well, man, if I, can't, if I can get to this patient 20 years before, you know, like 20 years, if I can keep them you know, satisfied for that 20-year duration. It's not, it, it's, it is absolutely about the contact lenses, but it's also about all these other things that we kind of wring our hands over, you know, Ethan, in practice for, for uh, every day, right? I like that, I like that summary point of, of, of dollars. So Ethan, then, um, if we bring this in into our practice, uh, tell me a little bit about, because you have four practices now? Correct. And so, Tell me a little bit about when you acquire a practice, there's probably this challenge that occurs to make some changes but not change things too quickly. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely, because uh, when we acquire a practice, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a two-sided transaction. Like, 
they're looking for something from us and we are looking for something from them. And so in our situation, like they have been looking for help with, um, you know, uh, process improvement, um, patient care improvement. You so know, they what, want to stay on in practice, most of them do. That's, yeah, that's, are that's the Are they retiring or are they? Uh, I mean, not, not immediately. Okay. It's been more, they were single doctor practices that um, just wanted to be part of a large organization and not be on an island yep. by themselves. And so it is a process of, you know, kind of saying, well, this is the way we do it. This is the way we've had success with it. You can find your lane in there somewhere. You know what I mean? We don't dictate, like we don't tell anyone how to take care of their patients. We just say, well, this is how we've done it. This is how we've been successful. Maybe you can incorporate some of that over time. And that has worked well in terms of you know keeping that professional relationship with the providers, but at the same time, you know, providing what they want in terms of the level of care that they're giving their patients. Yeah, I think that's so that gives me a little help, a little bit more perspective on what you, what it's like in your practice as we get to some of these other conversations related to multifocals. And so I'm going to come back to you, Michelle, after after I understand that from from Ethan is. Um, we did a survey of practices, and, and many of you in the audience probably uh, were able to take this survey, and, and asked specifically, so we talked about the U.S. market within, within multifocal and presbyopic care, but then Vision Source specifically, and I always like to think that, and I think all of us in Vision Source season like to think, and, and in the audience, that, that we do a little bit of a better job than, than kind of the average practice. Did we do better, Michelle? No. No. Um, but you think you're doing better, which <laughs> well, that, that goes counts. Although that's, that's, that's good. That's, that's good. Um, so when we look at these global numbers, we started to ask ourselves, well, what do you think? What, so we we surveyed. We had over 200 people respond back, and what you told us is that 40% of you said I prescribe soft multifocal lenses to all my presbyopes who wear contact lenses, which is great because I said, well, the U.S. average is 35%, right? Um, or they're eligible. Well, when we actually looked at the vision source data and what was the percentage of contact lenses that are prescribed for presbyopia across all vision source groups of all manufacturers, it's about 13%. So we reported 40%, and then, but, but it's 13%. It's 13%. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize. I didn't realize it. So, so then, well, I didn't, I, I knew that that, there, that was lower because because obviously we had discussed some of this before. But then, you know, Ethan and I decided, well, we're going to have sort of the challenge among each other. We're going to see who's taller. I don't know who is taller. You have to Oh, be by a mile. It's not me. by a mile. <laughs> by a mile. Not Chris. by a mile at all. So, we were, so but we, we did, we sort of compared. We didn't know the answers, and we still suspected that we did better. Yes. Um, and so what we did was, I think this is helpful. It's probably a good uh, kind of tool in your practice to sort of run these numbers as well is, so we looked at, okay, we, we looked at, it was easy for us because we differentiate our contact lens fits by spherical uh, patients, by patients who have astigmatism, by patients who are presbyopic. And so that was an easy thing for us to look at. And we just did, we just happened to each have those reports we could run. So we ran those reports uh, and, and we compared those. We said, okay, well, how many times are we actually, maybe those patients don't purchase from our practice or whatever, so it, it kind of levels the playing field. We fit those patients in different type of modalities. And so, Ethan, um, who won that one? I think I did. I think I was at 23%. No, you Is didn't it? win. No? No. You won on the Toric one. Okay. I'm looking right now at the data. So We so split. To, so to give you some perspective, <laughs> so if you had been in on the last talk, you knew that Ethan won the battle for the, uh, the astigmats. 
It was close, but, but he won the battle. Um, but, but if we think that the uh, multifocal fits are 13% of the population, or 13% of patients who are being fit as a, as a multifocal patient, um, Ethan's practice was a little bit better than the average vision source. They were at 15%. Um, but we, because we've got an awesome team right up front here, do you know what we, we did, Ethan? Do you remember? I, I do not. We doubled it. <laughs> so we were at 33% in our practice. And I, I think I, I, I would attribute that mainly just because my, my dad has been in practice for a lot, a lot of years. It's, a, it's an aging population in our practice. And we're just way better. And so... Um, <laughs> this so, is why I'm between the two. <laughs> so I think... Um, well, when you think about that, uh, Ethan... What, what is sort of your approach? Like, what's the, the so from, we're having a clinical conversation here, understanding that we're not doing as well as we think we're doing, right? We're missing the mark by, you know, let's say 40% is the mark, and we're hitting 15%. How does that inform you as a, as a clinician of, like, what should I be doing in my practice differently? Right. No, and, and you are right. Like, we are under-indexing. I will say, like, if you look at our patient demographics, we have a giant vision therapy and pediatric aspect of our practice with Dr. Heidi Bell. So like our patient population is much, much, much younger. Yep. So when we look at it that way, like we are pretty closely indexed on those, on those multifocal fits. But um, for, for us and like our approach in clinic, like it, it really resonates with me because I, I am fully presbyopic now myself. And it's kind of one of those things like you don't understand until you become presbyopic um, what it actually is. So how many of you are in Generation X with me? Okay, so Generation X. Wait, you better define the, what, what's your threshold for X to? Oh, I don't remember how that's defined. I just remember Pepsi-Cola told us we were Generation X the whole time we were growing so up. I, so I, I suppose I'm probably yeah. Generation X with you. Yeah, so, so we're all becoming presbyopic, and we were kind of the first generation that got contact lenses when we were like 13, 14, 15 years old. And so then when we become presbyopic, like this is a very real sign of aging. And Cooper Vision's done a lot of work on this where they found that patients experience real big emotions around this. They, they're sad, they're scared, um, and they're angry. And so, you know, when you kind of put it in that context of like, you know, these patients are going through some stuff. And, you know, think of how, many, how much money is spent on cosmetics and Botox and, you know, fillers and everything else to try to preserve that appearance of youth. And then if you take somebody who's worn contact lenses since they were 15 years old, and now they're 45 and doing a lot of really good work, but hey, you, you're gonna carry around cheaters or you're gonna wear glasses, like that's a big blow. That's a huge, huge impact on their self-image. And so when I can kind of put that in context of like, we're not just correcting that person's vision, like we're really giving them the feeling and appearance of youth. That's a much more powerful way to approach, for me, yeah. to approach what we're doing with those patients. And so we are very, I would say, aggressive about fitting those patients in soft multifocal lenses because we know the impact that we're having on that patient. Do you find, Ethan, that, um, that it's easier or harder to enter into a multifocal fit early on, like when the patient is an early presbyter? Because I think there's, so, so here's, my, here's the reason I asked the question. Because in my practice, I've, I've sort of had this philosophy for years of like, it's way easier to get a patient to adjust to that multifocal optics if we're doing it in lower powers, right? But then you get the patients that do not want to sacrifice any distance vision mm -hmm. at all whatsoever. So 
and you know that they're over accommodating, they're spasming a little bit. And so, uh, so you try to push them into a, a, a low amount of, of ad power um, and, and a lens that is effective for that. Actually, the, you know, this is a plug, but it's true. Uh, we've had a really good success with the, the MyDay multifocal for those patients. But, um, but some of them still just don't want to tolerate any distance blur. So there's this advantage of getting them earlier, but then there's this sort of disadvantage of making them a little less happy if they're not ready to, to, to relax some of that distance. What, what's your approach to that? No, I agree. I, I try to convert them early also because I, we also know, as we discussed during the astigmatic um, portion of this too, is oftentimes if patients have blurred vision with their contact lenses, they will perceive that as discomfort in the contact lens. Right, it's an internal sensation of the blur, but it's a very real external symptom of it feels less comfortable. And so, my thought is, if we're not proactively giving those patients clear, comfortable vision, especially up close, because they spend so much time on their screens, that those are going to be the silent dropout. You know, those are going to be the people who just stop wearing their contact lenses. Um, you know, and, and maybe not come back for their annual eye exam, or if they do come back you know, say, you know what, I don't want to do the contact lens fit. And if we're not great about asking, well, why don't you want to do the contact lens fit? Why don't you want to be refit? That then, to Michelle's point, yeah. that's that patient who drops out when they become presbyopic and they're never wearing contact lenses again. Yeah. So I, I agree I with you. I try to be proactive about, you know, first signs, first symptoms. Let's, let's address it. Yeah, I need, to, I need to be more proactive. I need to be, when patients who have worn contacts in the past, decide this year that they that they didn't want to and we'll see it on the little uh, routing sheet that comes in um, I need to do a better job of the of the asking the maybe the whys like well why not this year or what what tell me about the experience or Aldo this brings me to your point of how could how could we have kept you in contact lens yeah, so uh, so Aldo a lot of this is related to a lot of kind of what Ethan and I and Michelle have discussed already is well, how do we do this clinically? Like, what do we understand? How do we do this clinically? And what I wanted to have you on today is to talk about, like, well, what are we doing wrong, right? So our approach to multifocals, you've gotten to sit and listen to this. What does our brain tell us? How's the patient's brain going to interact with, the, with our approach to using an early multifocal lens sure. or a patient where they're, where they're just having a little bit of issues but we're moving them into a multifocal lens. How's their brain going to react in those? And what, how does our conversations with that patient need to be different to help their brain along? Well, let me take a step back and just sort of bring the audience along with what's going on with our brain. And, and um, I think your brain really is too independent, not really talking to each other all the time, things going on. There's, there's a very developed side of our brain. Ethan talked about it, Michelle talked about it, Chris, Chris, Chris was talking about it. That, that's the part that listens, it understands, it, it's rational, it'll think about something, it'll give you a good answer. And then there's another part, I, sometimes I call it primal, I personally like calling it the lazy brain. It doesn't care. It only cares about one thing, getting a reward. It doesn't really care about what's going on, doesn't really care about what, what, what happens. In fact, it's immensely lazy. Um, and, and you have these two things going on all day long. Um, think of all the things that you were going to do but you didn't do, that you were going to try but you didn't try, that you were going to go and you didn't. That's the lazy brain saying, why, why do we have to? Like, we, we don't. 
Let's, let, let's sit down. Um, so your patience, you were talking a little bit about your patience. Now, now keep in mind that both of those are on all the time. And if the lazy brain gets to win, the lazy brain will win every time. It, it'll, it'll just say, hey, look, this looks a little hard, and I don't want to do it. And you were asking me about patients, and what, it, what are they feeling? Well, if, if a patient's going, hey, you know, this feels hard. Like, I, I've got to work to, 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 to see if I'm seeing right. There's got to be a different way. I'll, I'll just put the readers out, or I'll just go do that, or I don't want to do anything, or I'll... And, 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 and the conversation goes that. And they'll give you signals as a practitioner that they're getting fidgety, that they don't want to. And that'll create doubt with you. And you're like, well, you know what? Maybe I'm taking too long. And you know what? Maybe glasses are better. Or maybe you should just go do this. Or all of a sudden, we're all backing off. Uh, and, that, and that's what's going on. Imagine going, uh, going through that. Ev I'm talking about it in, in a lot of detail. But those things are instantly going on in our minds. And we're making quick decisions on that. And most often, that lazy brain, that side of our brain that, that shouldn't take over, takes over. And, and that's the part that sort of quiets things down. Um, we, we've got some things in our mind. Um, we do uh, mental accounting. And, and practitioners are great at mental accounting. You know what? I'm going to spend an extra hour and I'm seeing two other patients. And they're going to say no anyways. I'm just going to put them in glasses. They're going to be happier that way. I'm going to be probably better off. There's a good example of probably what's going on in but everybody's head. This, that, that process that you just described, that is unconscious. It's subconscious in most. It's in the lazy part of the brain. It's in the lazy part of the brain. So that, that's what I, I think that's so interesting because I, I've, I've had these conversations a number of times and I always have to preface it by saying the number one reason, the number one I think, thing I care about, I think about those things right there, always the patient. But the, the reason I focus on, okay, exactly what you said, I could have sold them a pair of glasses, it would have been fine, and they're going to be on their way, and no hassle. I focus on that because it's subconscious. It's layered in all of our minds, right? I take the managed vision uh, because I have this opportunity to see the patient from other things. It's worth the practice for us to do it unless they have the other things. So I bring that to the forefront often because I know it's on the I call it the back of it. You're saying it's in the lazy part of the brain. And these calculations are just happening. just happening. And we don't even know they're happening. Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> but, I mean, but, but this is what I think about public often. And, um, and, I, and I'm worried that when I talk about it, it becomes like, oh, we're talking about money. We should be talking about patients. But these are subconscious economic factors that happen to every single person in every single profession, regardless of what they a absolutely, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell just a little bit more about the lazy brain and then just come, come back to, to that point because the, the point you made is really important. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back on it. This is how your lazy brain works. It's, it, it's, a, it's, it's immensely simple. It says, I'm going to do some effort. I want a reward. And, 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 that's, and that's really what's going on. And then it says, if I do effort and I don't get a reward, I'm going to be mad. Or if it takes a lot of effort and I get a little reward, I'm going to be mad. And so that's what's going on in its head. So what you were talking about is this thing called rules of thumb. And that's your lazy brain sort of saying, I've done this, and it was a lot of effort, and I don't remember getting a big reward, so my rule of thumb is I'm not going to do this. 
or, and we could describe that rule of thumb in so many different ways, but I am sure inside of all your heads there are a slew of rules of thumb. If they do this, I should do that. If they happen to do this, I should do that. If it's my favorite is at noon, we all want to have lunch. We might not be hungry, but at noon, we know it's a rule of thumb, we should go have lunch. Um, but but that's, what, that's what stops you. That, that, little, that, that lazy brain goes, I've tried this before, and it didn't work out the way I wanted it. So then, is there, uh, like, is there, tell us about the, the chemical reaction that occurs in the brain in these different areas that, that generate different types of reward systems that we get. Yeah, so, so that lazy brain, um, and like I said, it, it wants a reward. Its, it's reward is, is uh, one of four chemicals. Sometimes you, you might hear in, in, in the media they say dose. But dopamine, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's sort of the favorite. If you've ever had a checklist and you checked off a checklist or made uh, a, a little bit of progress or ticked a small box or did a small task, that's dopamine. That, that, that's on, on its way to your brain and your brain goes, woof. I feel so good. I just got that done. I checked it off. Job done. Um, the next one is oxytocin. Oxytocin is the hugging. That's why, that's why the pandemic was so hard on us. We didn't get that, 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 that interpersonal space. We like to be close to each other. We like to hug each other. We like to see each other. And, we, and it's important to do that because it releases a bit in your brain. Your brain feels good about that, especially the lazy side. Um, and then there's serotonin. Serotonin is one of my favorite because serotonin can be triggered in so many fun and easy ways. Serotonin is the accomplishment. Think about any time you're with somebody and say, good job, nice work today, excellent. All of that sort of suggests an achievement. And that achievement releases that for, for, for your lazy brain. And that loves it. And the one good thing about your lazy brain, and this is the most interesting and the difference between welcomed change and just change. You've heard the old adage, the carrot and a stick. And I don't believe in the carrot and a stick. It doesn't work. The carrot works, not the carrot and the stick, because your brain doesn't work on punishment. It works on rewards. Um, and so the one really good thing about your brain is that it can anticipate. And so if you do something and you got a reward, well, you want to do it again, because your brain's going. I'm going to get a reward, and I don't have to work that hard because I did it before, and I know what it's like, and so let's do it again. And that's one of the things that we have to work really hard at, really training ourselves for those little rewards. Those are those dopamine releases, and those are fantastic. They make us excited about things. They make us want to do things. They make us feel just like we checked that box or lined out that, that item. And then when that serotonin comes, just it's an even bigger hit. And really training ourselves to look for those things, it'll change the dynamics of what you do without altering what you do. Because what you do is right. The developed side of your brain understands it. There's statistics. There's things. You're helping people see better. And you want to do those things. And that lazy brain in back is going, nah, you know what? I got a rule of thumb for this one, and we passed. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Um... The, the thing I'm probably, I wonder about this. I, I, actually, as you're talking about it, it makes me wonder, is this a good way to actually provide some of that dopamine release for the patient? It's not natural for me. I'm more of an analytical, I, I like to think at least that I, I want to 
articulate to the patient why we're doing this and it's going to be this way and that way. Um, and sometimes I listen to people and I'm like, oh, I should do that. And, and, and it's like, instead of saying, well, we're going to put you in a multifocal lens and it's going to be really good. And, but there's a little bit of trade-off. You might notice a little bit of distance blur occasionally, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I kind of hedge my bets. You know, I'm really good about hedging my bets. I don't want to overpromise. Uh, I don't want to undersell things either, but maybe I could just say, this is an awesome new lens and you're going to love it. Right? Would that trigger enough dopamine for the patient imme immediately? It's a completely different, it's a different, it's a different process that goes on in someone's head. Okay. If you start out with just that, or good news, I've got a lens for you. I didn't tell you it was awesome. I didn't say anything. I just said good news. Hmm. Good news is amazing. I've done this, I've done this in tests just to see. Good news, your house burned out. <laughs> <laughs> the reaction people are like, well, you know what, it wasn't so bad. But if I start out with bad news, your house burned down, oh my God, things are bad. It's just that easy. If you started out with just a simple thing, good news, I've got a lens for you. Mm. Before I start hedging the bet, before your brain starts So going I can still hedge my bet. You can I still just get to say your, good news. You can still hedge ah, your bet. Ah, what how else can I do that? <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't have heard your legend hedging your bet. They would have heard good news. The the lazy brain goes, I don't really care what he says after yep. that. All my team is plotting, like, Dr. Wolf, good news. <laughs> good news. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. So, all right. So, um, okay. I, I lost my train of thought because I was so excited about how I'm going to deliver this to the patient now. Okay. Uh, the, um, so, that, so that, Aldo, describes how we might want to deliver something like a multifocal lens that's going to be new for the patient. Are there other good triggers, like besides good news, is there another one that I could use or ever? I'm just going to have to deliver good news all the time. No, you don't have to deliver <laughs> good news <laughs> all the time. Depending on what you're, I mean, one of the easy ways to, to, to start is how. Um, and, and, and let me just describe the difference between how and what. Um, what you're doing is a, is, is a uh, binary response. I, I did this, I didn't do that. And that, unfortunately, has a good and a bad. And so what happens with, with, with the lazy brain in that perspective, it says, you know what, if I tell the truth and he says or she says that the answer's wrong, I get to feel bad. And I don't want to do that. And so now I'm not sure if I'm going to tell the truth. And then your developed side of your brain is going in and going, we should tell the truth. What are you doing? Not wanting to tell the truth. And there's a, a good hesitation going on. And, and then there's hesitation on their part. And then... An, because it's, it's a natural human thing. If we're talking and you hesitate for a minute, I'm going to want to jump in. And all of a sudden, the conversation is going to wander in the wrong direction. Um, but how isn't really a, a question of right or wrong. How you're doing something isn't really about that. And so your right or, or, or your developed brain sort of takes over and goes, well, let me tell you how I'm doing that. Uh, and then you can ask more questions in there. But what you'll discover is that it becomes a dialogue instead of an answer, a question and answer session. And then the dialogue allows you to say, I've got a lens for you. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that covers the patient. How does, our, how does that lazy brain impact us as providers? So we, we've said, all right, we're going to remove the barrier of the patient, the patient's lazy brain by saying, great news, right? And now we need to remove our own lazy brain because we need the dopamine release. Just we need much. the serotonin. Exactly. Yeah. 
it's a it's a two-way street. And and one of the things, especially for multifocal, because we're trained. Um, Michelle said it, thirteen percent. Um, it's a small number. And one of the things that we do really good is we remember the failures and we forget the successes. Mm -hmm. Everybody is excellent at remembering the time that went bad and terrible at remembering all the times that went good. We're just wired that way. It's not our fault. We're just wired that way. Mainly because the, 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 the lazy brain is saying, I don't want that to happen anymore. And it doesn't do a good job of remembering the other part. So if you have a success wall that just reminds people something to visualize, remind yourselves of your successes. We need to write that down. Because that's what, that's what will drive you to try. Um, the, 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 the magic in, in what goes on is to um, associate trying with a chemical release. Um, we're, we are not wired to do that. We are wired to expect the, 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 the end to be the, the end. So if, they, if they're successfully fit and they buy them, then I should be happy. There's a lot of space in too between there. Too much time. Too much activity. And the lazy brain is going to stand up and say, instead of investing all that time, because remember, I'm lazy, um, let's not do it. And there's a, probably a lot of other things that we can do instead that will, that will release that dopamine or release that serotonin. So, so why do this in the first place? And, yeah. and we're not wiring that ourselves. Ethan, have you thought about how you would take an approach to your multifocal practice to give yourself to maybe to, to give that immediate reward. I've, I've racked my brain about this. I mean, outside of you know, Aldo's uh, recommendation of, uh, and actually Michelle, the, you know, the gold star every time we do this, how can we sort of keep track of this? Have you given any thought or worked on that at all? Uh, I don't have anything like concrete, like the gold stars or anything else like that, but it kind of goes down to what, um, what I talked about earlier is I, I relate to these patients so closely right now you know, being at that age myself too, that um, I get so much satisfaction out of, you know, when we, when we fit that patient with the lens and you just say, you know, look at your phone, you know, and you see their text messages are blown up to like 50 font. Mm. And then, you know, they hold it and they say, oh, I can read it, right? Like I get a lot of satisfaction out of that because I know what that phone looks like to me. Um, and I know what a challenge that is for me. And so when I can see that they're getting that experience and that immediate satisfaction. I mean, I get, that's 10 out of 10 for me. I think I mess up in this a little bit. I think, so what, what we typically do, and, and my team is going to tell you this is exactly what I do, I say, you know, go have Mrs. Smith put on uh, these reveal multifocal lenses. They write it all down. They take her there. And I say, then I say, and have her go take a look at, out front far away and then pick up her phone. But maybe if I reverse that, because Mrs. Smith was, her main experience was the, the challenge up close, mm -hmm. is we start with that. Right? And then and almost where you have her look at it first and, and say, okay, I want you to look at this and then we're going to put these lenses on. Right? Give them that fresh, um, maybe Aldo, this makes a, the Absolutely. recency, right? The recency that could occur. And, and you gave her they, a win. Yeah. You, you, you gave Mrs. Smith the win and yeah. that's important. You know, the other thing I think that, that I'd, like your, I'd like to see how you guys do this because I, I often still resist this temptation is, this temptation to want to stick a 20 slash something in the chart. When, mm. uh, when, but then every time I do that, you know, I pull, pull them back in and they could have seen their phone really well where they couldn't before. And their visual experience outside of the office, the exam room was good. They're, they're looking around thinking this is really wonderful. 
but then we take them back in the dark exam room. We want to put the 2020 in the chart, and, and how does that ruin it? Does it ruin it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, how do we avoid that? Because <laughs> there's the medical legal thing that's going around in our right. brain of saying like, well, I got to put something in the chart, you know, about so, so they can drive. So I know? think we have in our right below our <laughs> right below our our visual acuities. There's a little uh, box that we can put free text in there, and I think what we do is just you know, patient very happy with distance and near vision with mm -hmm. contact lenses. Yeah, well, I will tell you that. Um, sorry to go. No, it's logic brain, brain yeah, yeah. on you. But when you're talking to patients wearing multifocal, the successful outcomes are those patients whose subjective feelings about how they saw were strong. Mm. So if they say, I am really happy, regardless of what their visual acuity is, if you're going for that 2020 or 2015, those that say, I'm really happy, are really happy and will wear them. Those that where we're chasing after the objective tend to be less satisfied. And so for multifocal wares, you do really want to pay more attention to their subjective impression of how they see. Yeah. Because that is that is their that's well, their gold star. And, and and Chris, you you taught your brain that twenty slash twenty gets a release. Yeah. And so oh, when I need you to don't do that. Yeah, you, when you don't get the twenty <laughs> slash twenty for your release, you're like if I just change your lens a little bit, I bet I could get it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when the patient's completely happy. Yeah, exactly. You know, from a from a testing standpoint, Ethan, um, that that just kind of, uh, if we can wrap this up from a from a standpoint of clinical practice, right? Clinical tools that we can use based on what Aldo has talked about, and based on a multifocal contact lens as well. It would seem to me that we would want to kind of coach our team if if the other portions of our team are taking acuity. Mm. Maybe starting larger or asking more open. Are you doing any of that kind of stuff? Oh, for sure. Um, because we, if we've had the problem before, where the patient is very satisfied, right? Yeah. And the technician takes their acuity, and then they leave the room with either the twenty twenty or the twenty fifteen oh. line isolated on the chart. And you walk in, and the note says, "Oh, they're very happy," and is it, but I can't read that. Like, so we've coached them. You know, leave the big the big lines up there, like don't reduce it all the way down because otherwise the patient does sit there and then get in their own head exactly. of, but I can't see that one. And yeah. so it's mixed success, I would say, on the technicians actually doing it, but that's what we try to achieve is just don't leave that because then they start nitpicking and find the, even though they're happy overall subjectively, like Michelle said. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Michelle, um, when we think about, well actually, I sort of open this up to the panel in general is, uh, when we think about new technologies, so there's there's always new technologies coming out. We've talked about the uh, the Mida Energist for sure. How do we approach technology by by removing that that we have pro proactively? Anybody have thoughts about that? Got a parting thoughts? Yeah, Aldo. So we're already behind on our multifocals. We have a gap, right? We've got reveal one day premium coming. How do we avoid the gap? How do you avoid the gap? Um, there's a couple of really important things uh, that we do. And, and, and we know that our existing experiences drive. And so we have to build an opportunity for those new experiences to come in. Um, and, and in doing so, we have to think of ways that allow for that dopamine hit to happen with the, with the new experience, not solely locked onto the old experience. 
and and this is this is goes back to just simple terminology. A lot of this is to get that that lazy side of the brain to sort of slow down just a second. We've got a great new technology. Like I love when we start using words of I've got a great new technology. We have to train ourselves to repeat that we've got great new technology. I don't have another lens. Well, the cool part about that that verbiage is that we really do. Like like I, 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 so we sometimes think about what we do and it becomes mundane. And when you really think about the cool stuff that we do as eye doctors and as opticians and technicians, like it is cool. And the stuff we have right now, pretty darn awesome, right? Yeah. So acknowledging that. Absolutely. We have to acknowledge that. And, and we are trained, like we know the, the rule of thumb is the world around us has sort of trained us that new is kind of cool. Um, and we, we, we have to allow ourselves to have it. I don't have another lens. I have a new cool lens. And small changes like that, they make a world of difference in the frequency that you go to it or the frequency that you're willing to try. And then rewarding the try. It's, it's, it's not rewarding the success of the try. It's rewarding the try. And if you think about those two things, appreciating the fact that it's a new technology and rewarding the try. I don't, it doesn't matter whether you reward the staff, reward yourselves, reward the patient by saying, hey, this is really cool. I want you to try it. And they're gonna go, oh, well, that's nice. They want me to try something. But reward that try, and you'll discover that it, it will pay dividends. As I said, the brain anticipates, and it wants that next one. So it's going, well, let's try again. Let's try again. Let's try again. Before you know it, it's now your new welcome habit. And it's a carrot, not a stick. I don't think we can end this on a, on a better one. Dr. Zaccario, Dr. Heisman, Dr. Andrews, as always, thanks for being on. Thanks for the audience today. We appreciate it. And I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your meeting. Thank you.